This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And I'm Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really great show today. There's a lot of news to cover, a lot of things going on as usual, but we're going to cover a couple of important topics, one having to do with the fact that U.S. lobbyists failed to disclose the NSO group's ties to Israel. That's the group, by the way, that is responsible in part for this Pegasus software that has been um, basically you know, tracking people and uh, responsible for a lot of uh, really problematic things, including being connected to the death of Jamal Khashoggi and uh, being able to tap into the phones of other you know, high-ranking individuals. So we'll be talking a little bit about that. We're also going to be talking about the trial that's going to begin for an ex-Twitter employee accused of spying for the Saudis. That's a very interesting story that we're going to be covering. But so before two, we spy, get... two, two spy stories we have. I know. <laughs> well, these are big spy stories, and they're always connected to what's going on in the, in the Arab world and with the apartheid state. But before we get to that, Jamal, you did a really excellent interview with Giovanni Fasina. He's the program director for the European Legal Support Center. He's going to talk about uh, Deutsche Welle, DW, the German public state-owned international broadcasting company that's been purging and has in fact purged five Arab journalists based on accusations. And it looks like obviously false accusations of anti-Semitism in their reporting. They've all sought legal recourse. One is already decided in favor of one of the journalists. It's a big, big story in, in Germany. And there's a lot of things to talk about with that story. So we got a really great show today. That's right, Jess. And, and this is uh a systematic campaign uh, in Germany, but also by several European uh, countries to, again, as we've seen right here in the United States, to to silence uh, critics of uh, the apartheid state of Israel and impose certain sanctions and conflate anti-Semitism with criticism of Israel. So let's uh, watch uh, Giovanni. Deutsche Welle, or DW, the German public state-owned international broadcaster, touts its mission as one supporting free media, free expression, and free societies. News coverage of Palestine appears to be exempt from this. In February, there was a purge of five Arab journalists based on accusations of anti-Semitism in their reporting. All have sought legal resource, with one case decision already in favor of one of the journalists. Has the blanket accusation of anti-Semitism become the go-to trigger to censor legitimate discussion on issues related to Palestine? Joining us to discuss this and more, Giovanni Fasina. Giovanni is a lawyer and the program director of the European Legal Support Center, it's the first and only independent organization defending and empowering the Palestine Solidarity Movement in Europe through legal means. Giovanni specializes in international law and human rights. Welcome to Arab Talk, Giovanni. Thank you. Thank you, Zaman. Thank you for inviting me. Let me begin by asking you, you know, to tell us about the purge of five Arab journalists from Deutsche Welle on, in February based on charges of anti-Semitism. What initiated this? That was, first of all, there is a background in a sense that already in May 2021, 2021 Deutsche Welle censored uh, an interview with Palestinian-American journalist Ali Abunimia and eventually apologized for inviting him. And following that incident, uh, Deutsche Welle sent to their staff an internal memorandum uh, banning its employee from using words such as apartheid and colonialism to describe Israel uh, and, uh, and, and and pushing to use the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism as a reference. So this is in general background. Uh, what, what, what triggered this purge was an article published by Sudoshte Zeitung, which is a newspaper in Germany, where a journalist, Moritz Baumsteiger, uh, went through uh, some of the social media account of journalists working for Deutsche Welle 
and uh, he decontextualized and misconstructed some of the articles uh, and social media posts that were written in Arabic uh, and framed them as anti-Semitic. Of course, this kind of accusation in Germany, given the context, are extremely serious. Therefore, after publishing this article, Deutsche Welle uh, decided to, to recruit an external investigator for uh, investigating anti-Semitism within Deutsche Welle. And then, you know, the rest is known in a sense that after this investigation, all the journalists who were mentioned in this article uh, by Satoshi Zeitung, they were all uh, dismissed. Uh, you're talking about the investigator. Is that, uh, are you speaking about Ahmed Mansour, uh, a Palestinian uh, German, I guess, psychologist? Uh, yes. He was commissioned by Deutsche Welle to investigate these charges. Yes, yes, exactly. What do you know about him? I don't know much about him, actually, when... When we, we approached the case for the first time, I was hearing about him. Uh, we know indeed that that uh, he's, he's a Palestinian, uh, that identifies himself as an Israeli Arab, expert in Muslim extremism and anti-Semitic prevention. Uh, he has a consultancy firm, which is called Mind Prevention, which was indeed recruited by Deutsche Welle for, for carrying out this investigation. I don't know much about him, but the report that eventually published was extremely problematic in our opinion, in a sense that uh, uh, that included uh, a complete misrepresentation of many of the social media posts that were made, and especially it framed uh, as anti-Semitic many uh, 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 statements that actually are protected by freedom of speech. For instance, uh, the report they in the report they made just to give an example, but we could speak about the report for just one hour. But in his report, uh, they wrote that uh, um, they wrote that, of course, like the, the, some of the uh, journalists were anti-Semitic, but also some of the partners, organizations Deutsche Welle were anti-Semitic. They're referring are extremely renowned human rights organizations such as AMLE. Uh, and they said that, uh, for instance, the fact that uh, Deutsche Welle in Palestine were using the hashtag Save Sheikh Jarrah was uh, following a, a subjective Palestinian propaganda and was inappropriate, saying that, you know, saying save, uh, save Sheikh Jarrah could be kind of anti-Semitic. So this just to give an example on how <laughs> problematic was the report that this person uh, made. So one of the journalists, Maram Salem, was uh, completely exonerated uh, by these fallacious uh, charges in early July in a court in Bonn. Uh, what what were the court's findings? Like, just a summary. Yeah, uh, but first of all, uh, it's important to stress that uh, uh, Maram was, uh, was assisted by an amazing lawyer, and his name is Ahmed Abed, who is a German-Palestinian lawyer who, who has been on the front on these kind of cases in Germany. And basically, in, in this case, what happened was that uh, uh, Maram was uh, dismissed uh, without even knowing the reasons why. They didn't never came to her saying what you've said was anything, nothing. She was just dismissed like this. And, and for, she found out for the first time in court that uh, some, they, they identified some social media posts that she wrote uh, were apparently anti-Semitic. But all their social media posts, were, they were just criticizing uh, uh, Europe and the way, uh, uh, the way, um, and the fact that indeed uh, uh, criticizing Israel in Europe uh, is is extremely dangerous because people can face uh, severe repercussions. And uh, uh, and basically, the judge acknowledged very openly that nothing of what she wrote was uh, was anti-Semitic. Uh, and and therefore uh, and, and and the Deutsche Welle lawyers which were present there didn't dare to rebut this. So the judge acknowledged that her dismissal is illegal, and uh, and right now uh, she I mean um, I mean and, and and now we're waiting Deutsche Welle for appealing this decision because we we think that that they're going to appeal anyway even if and they didn't rebut to the final decision of the judge and they have, they, their case is, is based on really weak uh, arguments and weak legs, I would, I would say. I mean, in Europe, uh, 
uh, voters or citizens can uh, criticize any politician, pretty much so. You, uh, I've heard uh, criticism calling politicians fascists and, and, and other uh, harshers, uh, harsher accusations, but then when you criticize Israel, you're labeled as an anti-Semite. Uh, let's talk about the hypocrisy that Deutsche Welle touts, you know, when they talk about in their motto, freedom of speech, but it's obvious that it is a selective freedom, wouldn't you say? Yes, especially in the light of the German context, yes, this is, this is true, in a, but uh, I, I would say that, uh, that yeah, this, is, this is extremely problematic, especially for organization need that theory. Uh, defend uh, free freedom of speech, but this, in my opinion, is the outcome of years of pressure from pro-Israel groups in Europe. In the last years, many groups push uh, European institutions and uh, and governments to adopt a new definition of anti-Semitism, which is called IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, of anti-Semitism which includes. Uh, Many examples where the conflation between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism is evident, mm-hmm. in a sense that when you are criticizing, uh, 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 when you are stating that Israel is committing is uh, is an apartheid state and is uh, racist, this can be labeled as anti-Semitic. And this definition has been adopted as non-legally binding, but the fact is creating a policy within uh, institutions. Uh, that a policy that is paving the way for this conflation and is making more and more difficult to uh, criticize uh, freely the state of Israel. And, and, and this case, it's a perfect example of this, in a sense that in the final report that uh, Mansour wrote, the main recommendation was you have to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and you have to make sure the IHRA is going to be enshrined in all your policies so you can sanction preemptively any form of speech uh, which uh, can uh, uh, be on the edge of, 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 of anti-Semitism. So yeah, it's it's extremely hypocritical uh, and it's becoming more and more a problem. Of course, more in Germany and Austria, I would say, mm. uh, but but in general, also in the UK, this is, this is really uh, an issue. Uh, Farah Maraka, uh, Palestinian Jordanian, and uh, another of uh, the journalists that the European Legal Support Center is representing, is uh, awaiting her court date. Uh, uh, discuss her case, please. If uh, you know, I know it's it's yeah, upcoming. Yeah, I mean, in Farah, the case was slightly different in a sense that in the case of Marama uh, uh, was not even quoted by Mansour in the report. Uh, uh, while some of the uh, so Farah has been accused because she wrote some articles uh, back in 2014 and 2015, and. Uh, were long pieces, which were satirical pieces written in Arabic, which has been badly translated and taken out of context. Uh, and Menon was accused of anti-Semitism. And, uh, and in this case, the lawyer of Farah's arguing court that, first of all, articles that had been written by Farah before being employed by, um, by the Chevalier cannot be a reason for terminating her contract because uh, uh, this would be a retroactive application of her contract that doesn't make any sense from a legal point of view. Uh, so uh, so this so in, in this case we decided I mean the lawyer decided rightly so to defend her on a procedural ground which make her case really really strong. Um, and, and and actually the judge uh, uh, um, Proposed the parties to settle, and uh, Farah accepted to settle only if some some conditions uh, were met, and, and most importantly, if some condition regarding uh, having her reputation rehabilitated. Uh, so the, the 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 judge was in favor of uh, of of the condition that uh, Farah uh, uh, lay down, and now they are negotiating uh, uh, with. Uh, um, with Deutsche Welle. If the party won't find an agreement uh, on the 5th of September, there's going to be a final verdict on uh, on the case. Uh, again, it's important to note that also here in this case, uh, the defense of Deutsche Welle were extremely weak, which show us that the decision 
to dismiss their employee was based on indeed on these huge smear campaigns with greater pressure on the institution, would decide to dismiss these people without even thinking, without having, I think, a legal counsel checking, because if now we have courts uh, uh, deeming illegal and unlawful all these dismissals, it's, it's really a worrying sign, I think. These cases are part of an obvious uh, broader uh, trend in Germany and across Europe, uh, in fact, to silence Palestinian and anti-colonial voices uh, from public debate. In addition to legal support such as as, uh, as your organization, what is the political dimension of this? The political dimension is that uh, uh, in Germany, it's extremely difficult to be a Palestinian and to speak out about uh, about Palestine. And we have so many cases which are testifying, uh, that are testifying this. So the political dimension is that uh, uh, um, in the Palestinian or also Arab with Palestinian background, they are facing more and more challenges to share their own experience and speak about their, uh, their, their culture and their past of their, of their families. Uh, we have so many cases on censorship. I mean, again, we can have uh, just a session speaking about them. But just to quote a few a few cases, for instance, in uh, uh, 2019, the German Bundestag adopted a, a motion uh, called anti-BDS motion, which is a non-legally binding motion adopted by the party. So it's not law, it's not legally binding. But this motion was equating BDS with anti-Semitism and was calling for public institutions to not uh, um, provide rooms and services to groups connected with BDS. So the situation now in Germany is that uh, if you, I mean, you, 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 need, you just need to be accused of being a part of BDS for being accused of, of anti-Semitism. And, and this has been challenged in court and extremely successfully by many, many groups. In the last year, we had at least six, seven judgments um, um, in cases where activists were trying to obtain a room for organizing an event. They were accused of being BDS. And then we're going to court, and the court always acknowledges that uh, 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 this motion is not legally binding, and if implemented in this way, it violates fundamental rights. So it's important to recall that the reason very important because you know, these uh, uh, because these motions uh, we have a Bundestag motion adopted national level, and this motion has been adopted at local level. So we have a specific city, municipality, and regions who adopted similar motions. I uh, just want to recall on this that there is a very important case uh, right now in Berlin, where, which is called uh, BT3P, Bundestag Free for Palestine, where free activists decided to challenge legally before an administrative court the Bundestag motion. Uh, the, the activists are uh, represented always by Ahmed Abed, and we are supporting them as well. These activists lost the first instance, but now there is an appeal where, uh, again, we are trying to have a court acknowledging that the, the motion per se uh, is uh, is uh, is unlawful. So again, the political dimension is that there's clearly a clear climate of uh, of repression on the one side. On the other side, again, uh, public and legal mobilization are showing that it's actually possible to fight and push back against this form of repression. Do you find it ironic that by uh, repressing Palestinian voices regarding Israeli apartheid and and, and the occupation, Germany is in fact once again facilitating fascist behavior uh, similar to that perpetrated in World War II and wants to atone that it wants to atone for? Yeah, I mean. Uh... Of course, for me, it's a shame that censorship and surveillance practices remain uh, in uh, remain in Germany. And especially, um, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly it's clearly a shame. Uh, a shame. And there are many important uh, um, academics and scholar who are now discussing this topic. One of the scholar is Anna Esther um, Younes, uh, that actually we are also representing, who has been actually victim of a case of surveillance. Just to give you another example, uh, in her case, uh, we have an organization which is called uh, uh, RIAS, which is monitoring anti-Semitism and using anti-Semitism. Uh, we're using, sorry, the ISRA definition for monitoring anti-Semitic activities. Um, Anna was invited for, uh, to have a speech uh, to have, um, in a panel about anti-racism in Berlin by the Alinka. And the day after she was disinvited, 
by her, uh, by, by the organizer. Uh, and a few weeks later, uh, she, um, she realized that she was disinvited because the organizer, because the organizer received a secret dossier by Rias. So this organization called Rias made a secret dossier about Anna, where they were taking an academic publication and some of the social media posts, they created this dossier and they framed her basically as a racist, as anti-Semitic and a supporter of, of Hamas, for instance. Uh, and this is digital surveillance. Looking to what people are posting on Facebook, on social media and creating a dossier is a surveillance. Um, long story short, Anna uh, sued uh, Rias in court before the, the Data Protection Authority for violation of privacy and, uh, and won. Uh, but the case is, is, still, is still ongoing. So this is extremely worrying. This kind of surveillance practices, of course, uh, are... are extremely problematic, I would say. But again, also Anna was, Anna, like Maram, like Farah, has been extremely brave because deciding to speak out publicly and challenging the thing in court and in the public arena is remarkable, given the, the, huge, the huge repression risk that, that people, uh, that people can, can face, even by speaking out. Within the past, couple of years of, or so, um, as you are aware of uh, the United Nations, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Israel's own human rights organization, B'Tselem, and, and others have defined Israel as an apartheid state. I mean, it, it's no longer a secret when you have major organizations now making that definition. Do you think this has any effect on maybe changing the positions of, of these governments or are they digging their heels uh, down and, and, and just deciding to bury their heads in the sand and ignore these facts? But I think that the kind of repression we are witnessing now is exactly the direct effect of this narrative in a sense that governments and uh, uh, like governments, but also private and public institutions are fully aware of what, uh, 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 what can happen when, if this narrative becomes so slowly hegemonic. And that's why we have this form of repression and surveillance, in a sense that uh, in this, I would say, the Israeli Ministry of Strategic Affairs and pro-Israeli groups are fully aware that if uh, uh, they, they manage to uh, uh, shut down the debate in Europe, uh, the practices and the policies uh, which are discriminatory that Israel is, is carrying out in Palestine, then they can continue very easily. So the goal, of course, is to shut down uh, the, is shut down the debate. Mm -hmm. um, in Europe, the situation is quite uh, complicated in a sense that it's not an homogeneous situation. Like in each state, in each country, uh, have different positions, I would say, on on uh, on 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 the apart on the on, on the apartheid. Um, however, uh, uh, what what is important is indeed that uh, uh, when we see, I mean, what, what we are witnessing is that uh, there is more and more public engagement on this topic, and there is more and more indignations against Israeli practices. So I think that, uh, you know, state will, state and institution, like in this case, like uh, will stop uh, the repression when, uh, when there's going to be, uh, 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 when we reach a broader consensus on this. And, and when, again, this narrative will completely became, will become hegemonic. But on this, we're confident because, uh, yeah, like the story is on our side. So we, we, we will keep uh, going. What is the prognosis for the struggle for freedom of speech in Germany in particular and the EU at large? I mean, if, if, if we're silencing, I mean, we're, we're kind of uh, cherry picking one topic, which is the Palestine issue. It still touches on freedom of speech. So the European Union or Europe at large cannot claim to, to have freedom of speech, right? Yeah. 
First of all, I mean, it's also very interesting in the sense that the culture that we have in Europe on freedom of speech is likely different from what you have in the United States. Uh, also because in Europe, especially, and I come from Italy, like the freedom of speech was always used, uh, especially after the Second World War, by neo-fascist group uh, in order to claim their space in the democratic arena. So for me, this is uh, not only a matter of freedom of speech, it's a matter of accountability. If we want to make Israel accountable, we need to be able to speak about first. Mm -hmm. uh, second uh, is a matter of, uh, um, uh, right now, is a matter of discrimination. Uh, we, um, I think that public and private institutions cannot discriminate and silence uh, Palestinian or people speaking out for Palestinian rights. Uh, based um, based indeed on the uh, on the on the origin of, of the Palestinian and based on uh, on on their, their their past and what they were recounting. Uh, so these are two important uh, things. The problem is, of course, again, <laughs> like um, <laughs> Gramsci used to say, the optimism of the will, the passion, the pessimism of the rational. Of course, I remain optimism in a sense that uh, uh, in the last uh, four years, we've obtained many crucial victories in court. Now, we have European Court of Human Rights, uh, which is uh, the European Court of Human Rights is the uh, is European Court, uh, which judgments are legally binding in uh, all the 27 uh, um, in uh, the State of Council of Europe. Uh, and there is a judgment in 2020, Baldassi versus France, in a case where BDS activists were uh, sanctioned uh, and were convicted for racial discrimination. And the court acknowledged that their conviction was a violation of freedom of expression, clearly acknowledging that uh, uh, the call for boycotting Israel is not a discriminatory call. We have this positive judgment. In Germany, we have other seven judgments against anti-BDS uh, um, motions. Uh, so, so, of course, like we, we are laying the ground slowly uh, for 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 uh, defying uh, these uh, these uh, these repressive tactics. On the other side, we are also very aware that uh, you know uh, uh, justice won't be delivered by a court. Like you know, a court can issue judgment that can be yes important, but uh, justice is made eventually by the people, <laughs> and people well, should just. Yeah, that, that, that's actually a good segue because my next question was to ask you. I mean, you talk about the legal court and and and, yeah. and giving these examples, but uh, how are you doing in the public court? Well, I mean, just to give you a few examples, in the public or public I mean, opinion, public, I should say, public opinion. Public, yeah, 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 no, in the public again. We could speak another hour about this because public opinion completely differs country by country, I would say. is situation in the Netherlands is different from Germany and in the UK. But just so you, I mean, during the bombing on Gaza in 2021, there were huge demonstrations, huge, in the Netherlands, in Germany, in the UK. In the UK, in, in London, we had uh, 100 or 200,000 people demonstrating in the street. So, so the public opinion uh, is 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 uh, uh, is more uh, careful about these things, I think. And just to give an example, like uh, in in Germany, just yesterday, uh, no, in during this weekend, there was the Berlin Pride uh, in Germany, the anti-capitalist Berlin Pride, which for many years was organized by a leftist organization in Germany, which actually were uh, uh, very pro-Israeli. In the last three years, now the anti-capitalist pride, which is a huge demonstration, there are thousands of people, as a huge Palestinian queer bloc and many Palestinian flags. Uh, while the, the, the so-called anti-Deutsch, this left uh, pro-Israeli left group, they were now excluded from the group, which is a small sign because we're talking about really like uh, uh, small, small groups. But in my opinion, it's still symptomatic on how this, this, the discourse is slowly changing. Uh, again, there is, there is a lot of work that needs to be needs to be done. Uh, but uh, but again, for the work we do, for us, the most important thing is that people that are attacked cannot be left alone, and that's for us the most important thing because eventually we want to empower activists, empower individuals who are advocating for Palestinian rights, and make sure that they are properly defended, represented when. Uh, uh, when they are affected by this kind of uh, attacks. 
Well, uh, Giovanni, it seems that you yourself and, of course, the European Legal Support Center are doing a great job. And, uh, and, and uh, I mean, it, it's very much needed uh, to be a, uh, a defense and, and a voice for the voiceless. Giovanni Fassina, uh, thank you for coming on Arab Talk. Thank you. Thank you so much to you. And just want to close, but yeah, no, thank you so much for your kind words. We've been extremely uh, inspired uh, by the amazing work that also the United States, Palestine Legal and Center for Constitutional Rights are doing. So if you're here now, it's because we had really good models we, we are following. Um, yeah, no, thanks for inviting uh, me again. My pleasure. That's the voice and the face of Giovanni Fassina. Jamal, it's a very interesting interview that you did with Giovanni. I mean, I think as you know, we mentioned on the intro, and we've certainly been talking about it, there's been renewed attacks on individuals, journalists, and anybody who's been critical of the apartheid state and conflating criticism of the apartheid state, which is justifiable, with uh, anti-Semitism. And this is a pretty big case having to do with these journalists, one, one of whom has been vindicated. That's right. And, and something very interesting that uh, Giovanni said uh, in the interview, uh, Jess, and it didn't, it, you know, actually, he, he just hit the nail uh, right on the head. Because I asked him, I said, look, I mean, things, the landscape have, has been changing. Israel uh, has been found to be an apartheid state by Human Rights Watch, by Amnesty International, by the United Nations. So many organizations, including its own former attorney general. And you'll think, you know, these countries who claim to be democratic countries in Europe will say, wait a minute, you know, uh, it's, it's legitimate to criticize apartheid, isn't it? Wasn't it the case to criticize apartheid South Africa? Absolutely. And what he said was very important. He said, no, they're basically upping the ante because... Exactly. They're trying to preempt because they think that if that label, which sticks, the apartheid label, which I, in my opinion, your opinion, many people, it has already been there. But if it, that label sticks, then they have an uphill battle. So they try, they're working right. harder to, to delegitimize organizations, to delegitimize journalists, to delegitimize politicians, anyone who basically criticizes Israel. Well, Jamal, I think this is going to be yet another example of the uh, of the Hasbaristas and the uh, defenders of apartheid Israel who have overplayed their hand again. Because, in fact, it's not just that the label of uh, apartheid Israel is sticking. The reality of apartheid Israel is becoming more and more apparent to, to the entire world to world leaders and to governments. And so, as we found out with the BDS movement, when, when the apartheid regime finds itself kind of losing the public relations battle and the truth battle on these issues, they just up the ante. They will never apologize. They will never come clean. They will never acknowledge that they are an apartheid regime. So what they do is that they go on the attack. So the attack of these five journalist, one of whom has been vindicated, I guess is proof of what we've been saying. When when they when they begin to feel the heat, they double down. Exactly. That's that's what's going on. And we're seeing it right here, of course, on college campuses in the United States. And we're seeing it now with the midterm elections, uh, how much APAC and its surrogates uh, they have been well, yeah, pouring look at Donna, millions. Look at Donna, Donna Edwards was uh, a, another great example. Yes, I was going to add add him to our show, but we we uh, don't have the time to discuss it. We'll discuss it next week because there'll be other examples. But right. you know, talking about uh, six million dollars, Jess, in a in a congressional <laughs> in a in a congressional district, unbelievable. Basically, they that's that's the that's the number. That's the number. That's the figure. Versus, I think uh, J Street uh, invested a hundred thousand dollars or eighty thousand dollars in in the opponent's campaign. You know, I mean, this is how how important and how big it is for them to stack up Congress with pro-Israel candidates. 
That's exactly right, Jamal. We'll be following this story because uh, the pre-midterm elections, we have a lot of early elections going on right now. The Donna Edwards example is a really important one. We don't have time to talk about it today, but you know, the apartheid regime, uh, their, their apologists here in DC, whether it's APAC or other institutions, are pouring in tens of millions of dollars uh, and it's both Democrat and Republican. It's just they're they're pouring in money to confront anybody who's critical of the apartheid regime. So obviously we'll be following that story. That story from Germany represents, you know, what's happening uh, in Europe, of course, which is very similar to here. So we'll continue to follow this story. That's right. So moving on, Jess. U.S. lobbyists accused of failing to disclose NSO groups, and as you've said, they're responsible for the spyware uh, Pegasus, ties to the Israeli government. Uh, and I mean, I mean, how, how do you fail to disclose ties to a foreign entity or a foreign government in this case? So, uh, so there is a complaint, and if this complaints um, are, I mean, confirmed, each lobbyist could face up to five years in prison and a fine of $250,000. Wow. So uh, the organization, we've had actually the executive director uh, hosted on the show before for this organization, uh, but it's uh, it's um, the Democracy for the Arab World now, Don. Uh, in a letter uh, they sent to the U.S. Department of Justice, calling on the government just to investigate the four agents representing NSO, saying that uh, when the agents registered uh, themselves uh, under FARA, they stated that the company, you know, freedom of information, they stated that the company was not supervised, owned, directed, controlled, financed, or subsidized in part by any foreign government and these complete lie complete lie these three lobbyists uh, for the record who who are now facing uh, this uh, lawsuit david tamasi steve rabanowitz and timothy dickinson they had uh, filed to register for the nso group after it was placed this happened after it was placed on a black list by the u.s department of commerce so so this is after actually everyone knew what NSO is all about last year, another lobbyist, his name is Brian Finch, registered prior to the listing. So I guess he was not, I guess, named. I don't, I'm not sure. I have to look at the details. In 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 the lawsuit, uh, uh, and 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 the and the complaint says, this is just I'm quoting from here uh, in one of the form. It says uh, the possession or exercise of power directly or indirectly to determine the policies or the activities of a person, whether through the ownership of voting rights by contract or otherwise. Meaning, if a government exerts this, then you have to de- declare right. that, yeah, this organization is uh, the government of France is behind it, or government of Britain is behind it, government of Israel is behind it. So uh, in in a report uh, from the New York Times, uh, senior Israeli officials uh, said that the Israeli government considered NSO and this software company a crucial component of its foreign policy and that if the U.S. accused it of acting against Washington inter- interests, then it was implicitly accusing Israel of doing the same. Yeah, but but here's the thing. Everybody knows this, Jamal. Everybody knows that the NSO NSO group works hand in hand, not just in terms of coordinating their efforts, but sharing of information with the apartheid regime. And listen, Pegasus has caused the death of many people because governments like the Saudi regime and other regimes. Including possibly Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah, including possibly Jamal Khashoggi. But, you know... Uh, I think the reporting on that is pretty compelling that his phone was infected with Pegasus software. Lots of politicians and other people uh, have had their phones infected with this, including it appears to be some Americans and some American politicians. So this is well known about Pegasus, Jamal, and the NSO group. And yet 
you know, they get away with it and they continue to get away with it. And um, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just not as optimistic, but, you know, with this filing, maybe there'll be some accountability, but only time will tell. Well, I mean, listen, in, in, there were several investigations into this, uh, mostly in, in 2021. This is when right. the NSO story sparked international outrage. And uh, it, it showed how Pegasus, the Israeli company's flagship product, that's, that's their flag, was used, as you mentioned, by governments to spy on activists, journalists, and political dissidents. Not only by the Israeli government, which is, it seems to me, the backbone of this organization, but right. also by oppressive regimes like Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, Morocco. They've all been, they've been using this, this spyware to track political dissidents uh, outside their countries and inside inside their countries this is it's not a secret it's not it's not a secret it's not a big secret and and i know you know we've been talking about this and you we all, you always made the joke and and kind of like and you said well uh, us politicians should should inspect their phones kind of like you should absolutely check, you know, absolutely but no one is really taking this seriously right here in the united states because uh, aside, which we know Saudi Arabia has used this product and all these, um, you know, regimes, we know for sure, I mean, I'm sure that several U.S. politicians, all their information has, has been taken away from their communication devices by this product. And, and, and someone is keeping the lid on this. Yeah, I think you know, you're right, Jamal. And, and, I have and another... we're, we're not we're not talking about like as if this has never, you know, like maybe maybe people think that we suffer from uh, short term memory and <laughs> and the name Jonathan Pollard disappeared from our memory. The largest exactly. basically spying case on the U.S. government by any individual in 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 recent history. So Israel has this history. So the question is to, to that we always pause. How much of this spying has been done through through Pegasus on American um, political? Yeah, I I, I have figures. some. Spec- I, it's it's a good question, Jamal. I have some speculation. I suspect that uh, the United States' own intelligence services have been using Pegasus also, and. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if APAC and its surrogates are using Pegasus. Um, and I'm just saying, because we have to ask the question, in whose interest is it to protect the NSO group and the use of Pegasus software? And the reason that it they're not coming down harder on, on the NSO group and the accountability for not disclosing this, it may have to do with the U.S., intelligence services liking this particular software because they're able to use it. I, I'm speculating, of course, I don't have the data to prove it yet, but you know, one plus one in my mind is still two. And the fact that they haven't been held accountable and it has been used so widely makes me very suspicious. And the other issue that we've always raised on the show is how come these lobby groups like APAC and others are not registered as foreign agent. And this is Absolutely. a prime example of this. And by the way, last month, a group of bipartisan lawmakers introduced a bill that would impose lifetime ban on members of Congress, senior military leaders, and senior executive branch officials for from lobbying for a foreign government or a political party. Yet you have... Exactly. All these APAC uh, stooges running around in, in, in Washington, D.C., lobbying on behalf of Israel, affecting our elections right here in the United States, you know, going after critics of Israel uh, in, in Congress. And they are not registered as, as uh, a foreign agent. And, and then, then you have these three lobbyists or maybe more who watch this and say well they get they get away with it we can lobby on behalf of this spyware company and not say that the israeli government is behind it and get away with it that's exactly right jamal and this is why it's such a big story 
And uh, and that's why I'm, I know we're going to be following this story. And I, I really do believe there's a darker side to this story, which will eventually come out having to do with the complicity between NSO intelligence services here, maybe in other countries that are that are you know, pushing back on the accountability of, of these things. And, you know, I guess it's okay to be a lobbyist for an apartheid regime. Uh, but if you're doing it for other countries, like there's a big story, we, we don't have time to cover it today. But, you know, there was uh, someone who was held accountable, an American citizen, uh, uh, an American citizen who was uh, being, uh, who's, who's going to be investigated for being uh who failed to disclose his lobbying for, for Qatar and for the UAE. That's another big story. And again, we may report on it next week. It'll just depend, but that's going to be, you know, the, they'll hold those individuals accountable. But when it comes to APAC and these other individuals, they get away, as we've said, literally and figuratively with murder. Well, uh, those who get away with murder, such as MBS, uh, and that's kind of a segue to our next story. Uh, exactly. Yes, and talking about uh, Saudi Arabia, the medieval kingdom. Uh, you know, we talked about the apartheid regime. Now, now we're going to talk about the medieval kingdom. Uh, this Thursday, the t- trial began right here, uh, just in, in San Francisco, for Ahmed Abu Ammu. Uh, a former Twitter employee accused of spying on users on behalf of Saudi Arabia. Unbelievable. In 2019, Mr. Abu Amu was arrested and charged with committing wire fraud and acting as an agent of a foreign government without disclosing uh, that that work. And, and in, in the opening statement in the uh, San Francisco Federal Court, the Justice Department described Mr. Abu Amu as an agent of Saudi Arabia who had used his internal access to dig up the personal information of dissidents uh, of the regime on Twitter. And uh, he wanted money and proximity to power. uh, That's according to the prosecutors. Uh, And he had a close and and still maintains a a close relationship with Badr uh, bin Askar, who was a top advisor of uh, the Crown Prince, M- M- MBS. So uh, all roads lead to MBS. Uh, as, what a you know, surprise. You what know. a surprise. So so uh, they displayed his photo of Mr. Abammo and Mr. Bin Askar standing in front of a wooden uh, sculpture of the Twitter logo during the tour of the company in San Francisco's headquarters. Uh, they met in London, and uh, uh, you and I don't have a luxury watch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Abu received a luxury lo- watch. I I, I can well, guess what kind of know, a watch. Yeah, it is, you know, yeah, you 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 could. I mean, this is this is part of uh, the pattern and the practice, Jamal, of certain people with money and access to you know the super wealthy and connected and powerful like MBS are able to weasel their way into Twitter and to these other companies and spy on people who are critical of the apartheid regime and dig up personal information. I mean, it's such an obvious case. And for the U.S. to take this step and to file this complaint and to have it go to trial this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's happening and what's going on out there. But, you know, I guess you said it. And the moral of the story is, and Joe Biden learned this moral, Jamal, all roads go to MBS, full stop. Whether it's the killing of Jamal Khashoggi or deploying Saudi assets within the United States to spy on people who are critical of the medieval kingdom. So it's a pretty ugly story. Well, think about it, how powerful these tools uh, and these agents and the services they are providing to oppressive regimes like Saudi Arabia or to countries like Israel. I mean, when you have uh, Pegasus, uh, you know, that can be installed on your computer and your phone and so forth, spying on these dissidents, and then you have basically malls working inside Twitter. At, at a very well, high level. At a at very a high very, level. Very and, high level. And this just names Twitter. So if, if they are at Twitter 
wouldn't they be at uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, TikTok, you name it. So, Everywhere. you know, I mean, basically, you know, you're, I mean, these governments and companies are subjecting anyone who is a critic of a, a certain oppressive regime to be tracked, to be spied on, and, and, and eventually this could lead to their arrest or, in the case of Jamal Khashoggi, to their murder. That's exactly right, Jamal. And that, that speaks to me, you know, this larger story. Why isn't Meta and Facebook and Twitter, why are, not they, why are they not being held accountable? At the larger level in terms of legislation and in terms of being able to put some sort of guardrails around the misuse of personal identifying information around these you know, these mega conglomerate uh, internet corporations. And, and the reason is somebody is benefiting that has a lot of money and a lot of power. And these companies are going to be allowed to function without any law or without any guardrails or without any protection because somebody is benefiting. And we know that MBS is benefiting from this. We know that the apartheid regime is benefiting. I suspect there are others who are benefiting too. Well, they're busy uh, basically si silencing Palestinian voices, silencing critics uh, of, of, of Israel. I mean, that's, that's what we have witnessed, uh, you and I, what's going on on Facebook and, and, and basically shutting down Palestinian pages while from within they have uh, basically malls working on behalf of foreign governments. I mean, I, I feel that, that there, this is just the tip of the iceberg uh, and, so, and yeah. hopefully someone who's, who's uh, honest enough, who's, who's basically ambitious enough to start an investigation of all these companies to make sure that they don't have malls servicing foreign countries. I think it's pretty much guaranteed, and I'm willing to stake everything on this, Jamal, that each one of these companies has moles. So um, we, we shall see, right? We shall see. And we need a January 6th style commission and committee investigating these mega digital internet companies to see what other uh, foreign interests are acting as moles. You know, we are going to keep following the story. That's what I know for sure. Well, the moral of the story, watch out for foreign agents who are not registered as such and watch out for right. malls at Twitter, Facebook, and other social media platforms. 100%. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. Go to our website, arabtalkradio.com, to download our shows from there, and we will talk to you next week. See you next week.